Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Shibe Sports Presents. My name is Johnny Goodtimes. I'm your boy, Reef. And uh, we are thrilled today to be talking with the uh, author of uh, uh, the book that just came out in March, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. Jerome Weitzman, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello, hello, Thank hello. You, hello. You for, did you forget the title that quickly? Come on. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you saw him trying to read it like, oh, yeah. I had the, the well, Google, like, the keyboard. You went a little long with the title. I, I wasn't going to memorize like 20 words. Yeah, we, we, did, we did go long. The title was um, – it was originally going to be something else. I'll see how I can say this. And then a certain somebody with a certain nickname made it clear that said nickname could not be used in titles for books without legal ramifications. So he has that trademark. <laughs> I don't, I, who? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Well, you weren't. You weren't exactly. You weren't exactly getting a ton of help from the Sixers throughout this process. But when you're writing the book, it's not like the Sixers were like, oh, good, finally a book about what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, that is a good summary. No, they, they, they were not like that. Yeah, welcomed. Uh, I was not welcomed with open arms. That is, uh, you can certainly say that. So could when you, could did you, you pitch? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Like you, you're not really a Sixers fan, right? You're a Knicks fan. Well, so, okay, laps Knicks fan. Definitely not a Sixers fan. Um, I grew up a Knicks fan. I grew up in New York. Um, you know, so a couple, so, you know, as you become a journalist, you're not supposed to be a fan. Um, I would say for me, I, you know, I worked on that. Also the phrase I use is once you see how the sausage is made, sometimes your fanhood fandom yeah. can kind of go away. So like the first team I was covering was the Knicks, um, being around the Knicks for a long time and seeing the inside of it will make you quickly. will uh, erode at your fandom pretty quickly there. What? So yeah, I will say <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm a basketball fan, but, uh, I won't. Yeah, correct. I am not a Sixers fan. That is true. Yeah. So, so what James made you to write a book about us? Yeah. 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 So, so I'm one. I just find the whole thing fat. I've always found the process and everything around it fascinating, and also sort of the conversation around it. Right? How everyone got, you know, people pick their sides. Kind of reminds of politics, right? Just people pick their mm -hmm. sides and very stringent in that belief. Um, then I had been around the team. I was an NBA writer for Bleach Report, you know, a quote unquote national writer. I say that not to make myself sound important, but to say my job was to find stories that resonated on a national, with a national audience. Um, mm -hmm. Living in New York, I had to leave New York to do that, right? The Knicks and Nets weren't cutting it. So I was often going down to Philly. Um, this was, I guess, the, I was lose track of the years, 17, 18, the first um, playoff year <laughs> I was around there, right? Like the, uh, the, year, the year that they ended up losing to the Celtics in the first round. Um, so I was around them a lot that year um, and just realizing like there's a lot, a lot here. There's just a lot of stuff, a lot of personalities, a lot of different point of views and angles and stories here that seems like it's the kind of thing that's worthy of being unpacked in a book. You, you talk about, you know, like, I guess in terms of when the process first started and you really even take it back before Hinky, right? Like, isn't that mm -hmm. part of what the book's about? Like, the process doesn't start the day Hinky's hired. It's it started even before that. Yeah, it's all the context, right? So you got to go back to, you know, the Iverson time um, and Iverson trade and how the team had sort of plateaued is the good word, right? Um, kind of hit the high mark. They had that great finals run. Um, I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys about that, right? Magical run in the city. Um, and they never recreated that. And they tried chasing that over and over and they never got it. And they plateaued. And Billy King, 
I know he gets a lot of uh, criticism around Philly. He was right to discern, like to realize, you know what? It's time to cut bait here. It's time to trade Iverson. We've hit our mark here. It's, this is not working. Let's go a different direction. And it was, I guess it was at 2006. He had, it was sort of a fork in the road moment for the franchise. The idea of, mm-hmm. should we tank? That was the year, you know, Kevin Durant's draft, Greg Oden. Should we tank and just, you know, try to get as good a draft pick as possible? Or should we sort of trade Iverson for other veterans? Should we get, you know, toe the line a little bit, see if we can get some young players, maybe lose some games, not completely tank. They end up making the trade. They bring Andre Miller back. Andre Miller plays too well. Um, They win too many games. They get the 13th pick, I believe. They get Thaddeus Young. Um, You know, Kevin Durant goes number two. Greg Oden number one. Obviously, that would have been a bust. Um, easy in hindsight my understanding and not just from billy king who would say this but from other people is that you know they would have durant was their favorite guy in the draft it's just an interesting thing to realize to think back of okay if you tanked maybe you get him um from there they have Thaddeus young they're sort of in that nba purgatory area for years just the idea of you're not good enough to compete for a championship not bad enough to get the top pick you need the top pick and the nba is nothing worse mediocrity is the worst thing in the nba it's the one thing we don't reward right you reward bad teams with draft picks Good teams get rewarded with playoff games, series, all that stuff. Mediocrity is the one thing that's not rewarded. That hit that point, they were mediocre, no way out. New ownership comes in, um, and this is really a big point. You know, new ownership comes in. These guys who are private equity guys, they bring a different sort of lens to business, to running a team. They bring their business lens to running the team. The idea of and what they often make their money in private equity is you buy a distressed asset, you tear it down, rebuild it. Sound familiar, right? So yeah, Hanky's yeah. the one who gets credit. Um, and for sure, but the, the analogy I always use is, you know, Hinky was the architect, but like, you know, the ownership was, if you hire an architect to renovate your house, he's carrying out your vision, right? It's not like mm-hmm. he's telling you something you don't really know. They're the owners right. of the house. Hinky was the architect carrying it out. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's amazing. So when they decided to do this, I don't, how does, how, what is the, what's the, what, that's what I was about to say. What's the process for the process? Like, where do you even begin lowercase to? T, lowercase <laughs> T, right? <laughs> lowercase T. But like, where, where do you even begin to, to, to visualize, you know, okay, we're going to get rid of this guy, bring this guy and rip this apart, rip this apart. How, what's the thinking behind, um, you know, getting the ball rolling on something like this in your research? What did you find? Yeah, so it's interesting. So it's basically, Hinky gets labeled as the tanking guy. And that's not always fair. People around him, you know, I didn't, speak to him much for this um people around him point out you know he had come from the houston rockets and they were not a tanking team um mm-hmm. and the reason was simple they had two superstars already they had tracy mcgrady and yao ming for them it was the idea of you know how we supplement those guys you make a trade for a shane battier type um for hinky the idea was and it makes sense right that's why sometimes it gets overcomplicated. the idea was we want to win a championship so we have to get there we are that's point b let's look at our roster point a what's the best way to get from here to there Maybe it's tanking, maybe it's trading with someone, maybe it's that. Just, you know, analyze your roster, recognize what your options are, how to, what's our best chance to get to a championship team. Looking at the roster, he realized there's no superstars. He realized that, um, you know, if you look through NBA history, you go through like, you know, basketball reference and you look at every championship team, almost every single one has a superstar and almost every single one of them were drafted, you know, in the top three, top five picks. And often um, for the team, and often they were winning championships for the team that drafted them, you know, Duncan, Kobe, guys like that. Not always, but often. So you're playing the odds. So the idea was, okay, we need those guys. Um, that's what we need. But we're going to go, we're going to do like blackjack. You know, what's going to separate us is we're going to double, triple, quadruple down. So swings of the plate was a phrase he would use. Uh, we want as many swings of the plate as possible. So, you know, we don't just want to tank once and go for one pick. And if we miss that, we're screwed. No, we're going to tank three, four times. We're going to get three, four, five swings of the plate of lottery picks. If we hit on only two, not even a great average, if we hit go two for five, right? 
your goal, you have two superstars and we're set up. And that was the logic. But there was, there was pushback from the NBA, obviously. And there was pushback from agents, you know, like I know Porzingis wouldn't work out for the Sixers because he didn't want to come here. Do you think that was something that kind of took the team by surprise that there was that much anger from the league and that there, there was that much pushback from agents who didn't want players to come here because it was such that it was perceived as a mess, not a process. For, for sure. So two parts. Yes or no. So Hanky underestimated um, the nature, how small world the NBA is, how different it is in other businesses. You know, there's only 30 teams. There's only, you know, there's a ton of agents, but I, don't have, I always want to look up the number, but I imagine, you know, if you think of like super agents, probably like six people represent, you know, 60% of the players, right? right. It's, you're dealing with the same people over and over and over. So it's very hard to deal with them and just try to kill them in business every single time, kill them in every negotiation, kill them in every trade to, that's one part. The agent part also, you have to remember, it's a limited marketplace. The NBA is different too. So agents are not happy. One of the 30 teams capable of paying their players and then that's how they get their commission, right? Has removed itself from the marketplace, essentially, for free agents. Um, stuff like that. The union's not happy for obvious reasons. Um, the league doesn't happy because it's hurting the bottom line financially. And it's also sort of pulling the curtain on the whole thing. You know, it's like the Herman Edwards line, you play to win the game. Um, professional sports, the whole model is really based on that. Like, why do we play? Why, are so much mo- why do we pay so much to go to games or t- more importantly tv money right or why do tv networks pay so much to put games on tv it's the integrity of the game right that's what separates it from like a tv show there's competition everyone's trying their hardest that's what the whole thing's based on if you remove that you have issues um so i think hinky underestimated that hinky underestimated how upset some people around him would be though he believed that you know so an agent use an agent for example they might not be happy now but in three years from now, if we have two superstars and a max and space for a max guy and player X wants to come, is the agent going to be able to say, no, you can't sign there because they wouldn't sign my second round draft pick, you know, four years ago to a good right. contract? Probably not. He was probably right about that. Mm-hmm. But what he always underestimated also is that the stomach his boss's ownership would have for all the reaction we're talking about, right? And I think that's the other part. And they underestimated, you know, Josh Harris and ownership underestimated how much they would care about what people think, be it the public be it their rich buddies who are saying, what the hell's going on here? Why are we losing money? You know, why is my arena empty every time you guys come here? Um, whether it's Adam Silver, you know, owning a, for these guys, owning a team is supposed to be fun, right? This is not their main job. This is something that's supposed to be enjoyable. Um, it's right. not enjoyable if you stink and everyone tells you you stink all the time. <laughs> I, think that part was, I think that part was underestimated, right? Right. Yeah. So they tried to speed up the process. So they, they get rid of Hinky. The league kind of helps bring Colangelo in here and that's when kind of the wheels come off. And that's sort of the, you know, that's sort of the dividing line, I think. You know, you've got a lot of hinky acolytes that will swear, you know, that if he had just stayed with the team, we'd be, we'd be playing tonight, right? We, like, we wouldn't have been humiliated in the first round, fired the coach, all that. A lot of people say that. He was, he was a sacrifice. Colangelo coming mm-hmm. in is the thing that, completely the wheels started to fall off and they haven't stopped falling off since do you think that's fair and do you how, how much do you think the league was behind that okay so a couple of things so is it fair i'll answer it separately yes and no to it being fair okay i i do think here's how i answer this would they be in better position now if hinky was left in charge all the time i don't I have no problem. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear, right? They'd be in better position now. I think one of the mistakes they made is they came in, Brian Colangelo especially, and they wanted to accelerate the timeline and grab a hold of the narrative, make it clear, this is my team. You know, I'm, that was one of the things I think that doomed in Brian Colangelo, and we later learned, he's somebody who really cared about what people think. 
on the idea of being Jerry's son and worried about nepotism charges and all that stuff. Like there are quotes from him when he's 29 years old working for the sun saying, yeah, he's worried about the nepotism charge. Um, that guy coming into this job, working under his father, under Sam Hinkie's shadow, had developed this cult following. I think we've learned, you know, the Twitter scandal made it very clear, right? This was a horrible, comb- a horrible situation, really combustible yeah. situation, a bad fit. He accelerated the timeline. Like I'm convinced, you know, part, no one told me this, but I think part of the Mark Faults trade, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show, I'm going to go get my guy. I'm going to show that's going to be my guy. I'm going to be the one who completed it. Right. Even later on, I have a note in the book, you know, after Brian Colangelo is fired, he's pitching Jimmy Butler. And part of the reason Jimmy Butler ended up in Philadelphia is because he was, I mean, he was at a dinner with um, his agent, who's good friends with Brian Colangelo. They start talking. This was after Jimmy Butler started the shenanigans in Minnesota. Jimmy Butler says, tell me about Philadelphia. Brian Colangelo says, you love it there. That's a place to win a championship. Like he's still selling Philadelphia, even after being, I guess, mutually parted ways, whatever the phrase is, even though he was fired, right? (laughs) And I think that's not an accident. I think he was, you know, he thinks that will be part of his legacy. Um, so that was a mistake accelerating the timeline. Hinky would not have done that. They would have been, you know, a little slower, not chase free agents the same way. They'd be in a better position. Um, I do think it's fair to wonder, you know, the teardown of rebuild is easy. It's when you have to start making specific bets on players. You know, this guy's a playoff guy. I want to pay him. This guy's not. Fit matters more. You know, the swings of the plate, suddenly you don't have swings of the plate. Suddenly you have to be very precise with your moves. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, the things that separate the 49 50 win teams from the championship teams, right? That, that, that second jump is the hard one. Right. Would Hinky have been a good at that? I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea. I don't know of anyone. His draft record is not great, right? It's not right. fantastic. Um, doesn't mean it wouldn't be good, um, but it's not fantastic. The part, though, so all that being said, yeah, they would have been in better position. What I do think, though, is that, um, you know, it's not like Hinky had no, had no say or that he had no, um, that he didn't contribute to his ousting, right? He made mistakes, too. It's not like he's an innocent bystander here who was pulled aside. So it's a tough conversation to have. You know, if you're partly at fault. There were valid reasons for him to be let go or for him to be relieved or questioned. Some of the things, you know, the culture stuff and, um, you know, not guys like Julio Okafor. He wasn't helping um, get acclimated to professional life and things like that. They were real, they were real problems. Right. And it's not all Hinky's fault, but he didn't, he didn't do a good job there. Um, but I do think they'd be in better position. If he was still here. Um, what was your other question about the league? The league definitely played a role, right? I don't think the league called up. Like, I think these, these things don't happen. Like people are in constant communication. It's not like Josh Harris and Adam Silver never talk. One day jo- Adam Silver goes to his secretary, get me Josh Harris on the line. He answers the phone and says, fire Sam Hickey now, right? That's not how these things go. These are constant communications. They're in constant communication all the time. Right. And Harris was, you know, getting frustrated. And at one point goes, you know, help me find somebody to help write the ship. And Adam Silver in the league was more than happy to, you know, suggest Jerry Colangelo. Jerry Colangelo told me Adam Silver is the one who brokered their phone call, right? That got Jerry in there. Rod Thorne was another name, the former Sixers GM slash president. He was another name who was considered also. Um, so it's not I like the league Sixers, forced it out. But I know the Sixers didn't really give you much access. Were, were there some other, but, but did you get like access to Colangelo's or anybody else? Yeah, I spoke to, I spoke to Jerry Colangelo. Brian did not want not so personally. Brian hasn't spoken to anyone um, <laughs> since. Um, yeah, unless there's a Twitter egg out there. Um, the uh, yeah, other people, other people I spoke to, other people spoke to. Some that. people, yes. <laughs> how? How could you possibly? Some people you spoke to. Um, you know, so the answer, Sixers. The Sixers are very clear. Like they would reach out to former employees of theirs and you know make clear that they're not participating. Um, but you, know, you get some people on the phone. You reach out to some people. Things like that. Yeah. Right. So uh, w- when you look at the the, the total. Uh, you know, would you consider what they did a success? Because there's a certain point where we're, you know, one basket, 
not dropping away from, you know, Eastern Conference finals. Um, I, uh, yeah. So my question is, through your research and after everything you saw, do you think that what they did actually worked? I do. So listen, the, the, uh, the counterpoint is, you know, they, they broke up a team that had made it to the second round of Game 7, right, um, of the playoffs, um, the Drew Holiday team, and they've never gotten past that, right? So that's the counterpoint, that after all this, they've yet to advance past that. Um, but I think if you – and this, I do think it was a success. I do think if you ask Sixers fans, this team feels different than those teams. Like, this team matters. This team's a contender, and I'll put that in quotes. Because I know they were bad this year. But, like, you know, preseason, entering the bubble, this is a quote-unquote championship contender. This is a team that if you're a Sixers fan – you're going to come home every night. You want to watch the game, right? You want to watch the game. You're following all the news. You're on top of this team. You care about it. They're resonating with you. Fans are so angry now because it's so disappointing and they matter. That was not the case before ever. Um, so that matters. Financially, they've been better. Um, they've made a lot of money, which I mean, that's part of the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like there were mistakes, but I do think they put themselves in a position where they still have a shot, right? They have two superstars. As long as you have two superstars, two top 20, you know, top 10, top 20, wherever you want to rank them guys, um, you have a shot in the NBA and that's the whole goal. You really need those guys. It's very rare that a team does not have two of those guys and make a championship run. I guess the Miami Heat are one example now, but they even, you know, Jimmy Butler and Bam are two superstars, right? These, these are the guys you need, um, to win and they didn't have those before and, and the whole goal was to have that so i think it was the six six yeah um did it go as well as it should have no though again i'll use my same like the architect analogy if you pull an architect mm. off the house project halfway through is it fair to judge them in the finished pro- project um sure. probably not completely um so i would i deem it as a success the, the the one of the most bizarre aspects of this and there have been a lot uh you know because i feel like we're finally reaching that point where we're looking back on the process, right? Like this book, Brett Brown getting fired. Like, you know, it, it seems like we're getting a new coach. It seems like the process now is we can start to kind of look at it in the past tense because what we're going to see now is just a Sixers team, right? Like the process was blowing all of, you know, was gaining all these assets. They've blown all of them. They've either gotten players yeah. <laughs> or they've traded those draft picks. So, but, but in looking back at the, at the bizarreness of the whole thing, nothing still is more bizarre or sort of upsetting than the Markel Fultz situation. And Mm. that is something that I know you go in, you do a whole chapter on and, and had some really interesting insight uh, into, um, into what happened there because to all of us it was such a mystery and it's one of the most bizarre twists in the whole thing we trade for the number one pick in the draft and the guy doesn't play for all of these mystery reasons uh and once again we're talking with your own weitzman of uh tanking to the top and and wanted to see what you you found out what you learned new about what happened with Fultz. so yeah Fultz thing's fascinating there are a few things i feel like to remember so one starting point is that um, Markel Fultz, I compare him to Ben Simmons, right? Ben Simmons was sort of bred to be a number one pick. He was prepared to be a famous since the age of 12, 13, right? And today being a top draft pick, number one pick, it's like celebrity. I think of it as like child celebrities, right? In terms of the spotlight that's put on them. Markel Fultz was still playing JV basketball sophomore year. He was a late bloomer. So this all happened to him very late and very fast. And I think it's important to keep that in the backdrop in terms of everything that happened next. Um, he quickly rises, shoots up the ranks. He's going to be a number one pick. Everyone says he's uh, everyone says he's a, almost the Boston Celtics, right? But pretty much everyone else believes he's a top 
um, pick, the top prospect in that draft. And to be fair, the Sixers, like the player he was projected to be, um, that's exactly the kind of player they need and people say they need to bridge, you know, Simmons and Embiid's talent, you know, big guard who can shoot a little bit, score, all that stuff. Um, he gets drafted. And from there, you see some of the things that we always um, associate with, you know, I'll say celebrities or players, things going wrong, you know, money, when money's injected into a situation, fame or injected into a situation, we see sort of people arguing, trying to grab power and who's the right, who's the proper right-hand man, who's he listening to, who's not. And there becomes issues between mm. him and his, his mom and his trainer slash coach have issues. Um, his mom put up, you know, was getting upset at neighbors around them being super protective, um, had him fire his best friend who was his manager because she thought he was bad for him. Mark Hill Fault, I have one scene where he runs out of his house crying, saying the money did this to us um, after his friend was fired, things like that. So all these stresses going wow. on in your life. Um, it's really important to keep in the backdrop, right? As that's happening, or kind of simultaneously, right? He has this injury in summer league. Um, I believe it was an ankle injury, right? He played really well at the beginning of summer league. I believe it was an ankle injury. And my understanding, talking to different people, is from there, you know, he, he starts shooting again a couple weeks later and maybe his form is a little off because anyone's played basketball knows, you know, if your ankle's off, you kind of overcompensate or one part of your body, you joke around to overcompensate. And that sort of set a chain reaction here. That plus I think some of the, um, some of the stresses in his life created a chain reaction here um, where there were all sorts of mechanical issues. Like, you know, he would try to, he came home for the summer and say, uh, you know, feel tell friends and he's shooting, you know, trying to lift his arms up. Be like, I can't, it feels like somebody's holding my arms down. That would often happen after fights with his mom. Um, things like that. Um, from there become more issues the the, tra- the Sixers start blaming it on the former coach slash trainer. They say, why did he change his form? The tra- coach slash fit trainer says, who also was like a father figure mentor to Mark Helfoltz, um, says, um, you know, it's not me. It's not, the, it's not my fault. It's not ours. You guys doing it. I can't fix anything. And this, all this is all going back and forth. And Markel has nowhere to look, looks to his mom. Important thing about his mom, she, you know, you can use the word smother, but again, you understand it. She was a, she was raised, I believe it was both her parents. I hope I'm getting this right. I think both her parents left her. She was raised by a grandmother. So you can understand why somebody like that might be overprotective of their kid, right? It's all these right. things like you can understand the human reactions of all these and the whys, but it's, or the background or the context that lead to certain, certain situations. But I think they all create this really combustible situation that Markel Fultz was not prepared to deal with. Um, and there was no one around him to deal with. And his agent was not great in helping him deal with it. You know, his agent was putting the blame on everyone else. They're saying there's a shoulder injury, there's a shoulder injury. The Sixers clearly did not think there was a shoulder injury. Um, he was an number one pick for them. They would have been happy to say it's a shoulder injury, right? That's easy to diagnose. Um, other issues, all that's going on. They eventually trade him. But yeah, it was, just a, it was a whole... It's a whole mess there. It was a whole mess there. Yeah. Um, this, this, and, and the thing I'll go back to is Fulton. I'll let you go. Fulton is in his first, in his draft workout. It was a fake workout. They make the trade for the number one pick. Um, Fulton tells a friend he doesn't want to play in Philly because it's too close to home. He bombs the workout. He's awful. Misses all his shots. But that was more of like a press junket than a workout. Like they have cameras there. Um, it's not really like they're not judging him. But they probably, if I was a little more telling than they realized in terms of just the pressure and what that was like for him to deal with. Yeah, because you can always kind of see like a vague, almost lost look in his eyes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was definitely had a lot on his mind. Well, how much, sure. how much of that is just, you know, like, again, we go back to you growing up a Knicks fan and, and then you saying, you know, you saw behind the scenes the dysfunction of the James Dolan Knicks. Obviously, there's a lot of dysfunction in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, the, the, 
Josh Harris is not particularly well liked in the city. And, and right now you've got, you've even got Colangelo's guys who are working with Elton Brand, who were supposed to be fired weeks ago and now are part of the searching for the coach process. The whole thing seems like a shit show, you know, to be honest with you, like the whole time the process has been going on. It's also seems there's something bubbling under the surface that's just really, uh, you know, it's just really not going as smoothly as they're putting in the press release, right? And how much of the full thing works into that, works into the fact that this franchise is not a particularly well-run one? Yeah, well, it comes down to, like, part of it is, um, you know, when something goes wrong, are we going to go go into ass-covering mode and leaking mode, and whose fault is it? Or are we going to kind of come together and try to work through a problem together? And I think for the Sixers in many areas, it's been more the former than the latter, right? And that's going to be dangerous because mistakes are going to happen. Um, you know, turbulence will come through in the ride, right? Like things, it's going to get bumpy at some points, but how do you react to those bumps? And I think that's one of the problems. Yeah. You, um, you know, there's a question now where a lot of teams that are just bad are questioned if they are in fact tanking. Do you think this is going to be something that we're going to continue to see? Not to that extent. So a, f- a couple of things. One is the NBA changed the lottery numbers. I'm going to forget it exactly now, but they, they flatten the odds to make, they it made it less likely that you get the number one pick if you're a bad team. So those, you know, you tweak the math even a little bit. It was already a risky proposition. Why Hinky would say, we're not going for one year because I don't want to get the number five pick. Like that's not worth it. We're going to go multiple years. Um, but man, like you tank two or three years, you know, teams will, teams will reset. Resetting is different, right? Resetting is okay. Let's play our young guys. Let's clear cap space. We'll get a draft pick. Hopefully it's high. If it's number seven instead of number three, that's fine. That's not ideal, but you know, we'll play the young guys. We'll kind of go reset our timeline is basically how you think about it. Right? Like let's go slow reset here. Um, I don't think we'll see a team. What'd you say? So look at the heat. I mean, they lost LeBron at around the same time we're starting the process. They lose their entire you know, they lose their best players. They, they restart a process, and now here they're playing tonight. What's interesting about them is they are like – it's almost the opposite. They're so targeted with their draft picks. Like, they had very few draft picks, and they hit on them, and not in the lottery, right? They hit on Bam. They hit on Tyler Hero. Um, and if you hit on a two or three, all of a sudden you're back, you know, you're back in it, especially if you're in Miami. Um, so I don't think we'll see teams go three, four years because that's a risky proposition to do that. Like, you're going to – excuse me. You're going to lose – you know, you're going to win 10 games a year for three years and maybe never end up with better than number five or six pick. Like, is that, that's not going to forget even like there's no fans. The fans won't have a stomach for it. You're not going to, it's not going to work. You're not going to have, you're not going to have a franchise player. You're just going to be 10 win, 10 win, 10 win, 22 win, 28 win, right? Like you're just not going to be anywhere. Um, so you take that into account. Also superstar players are more are on the move more frequently now than they were then contracts have been shorter. They're willing to get themselves out of contracts quicker. Um, doesn't mean every team can get a superstar, but it, the market's a little more fluid. So you take those two things, you combine them, and it's probably the, it's tweaked the math enough that it's not worth it. You're thinking like blackjack odds again, right? It's not worth it to do that for two, three, four years. So reset one year, kind of go slow, yes, for sure. But other, more than that, I don't think so. With with you know, obviously another point of uh, pain for us as Sixers fans is uh, we're going to see Jimmy Butler start in the NBA Finals tonight. Um, do, do you have? In, did you get any sort of inside uh, inside info in terms of why that went bad? Why they ended up not re-signing him and ended up taking guys who were clearly nowhere near as talented as Butler with with all the extra money they had. 
Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Um, it's, again, no simple reason. So it did not go great with Jimmy Butler and Brett Brown last year. That's very obvious, right? Everyone, they, they've made that clear. You don't need me to tell you that, but that's, so I think we got drag racing outside. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that's been very clear, right? Um, and Brett Brown made it clear throughout the year with ownership management, whatever, that he was not, I should say management, not ownership, management, that he was not happy with, um, or that he was, he was struggling coaching Jimmy Butler. Um, I think at the end of the year, he kind of, or going into the off season, he kind of came around the fact that, you know, I can coach him. I want to win. That's fine. Um, but I don't think, you know, him saying that doesn't mean management slash ownership believes that's a tenable situation, right? Those are two separate things. Um, so that was one problem. Another issue was Ben Simmons was, my understanding was not thrilled with being, you know, relegated off the ball, um, in the playoffs, you know, in the, in the playoffs, Jimmy Butler was sort of the, uh, not sort of, Brett Brown gave the keys to the offense, right? He was running pick and rolls and doing through Ed. Jimmy Butler, they put him in, uh, excuse me, Ben Simmons, they put him in the uh, block, low block, you know, dunker spot and off the ball for good reason. He was struggled and has struggled creating in a half court against playoff defenses. Um, I don't think Ben Simmons was uh, thrilled with the idea of that being his role for three, four, five years going forward. So you combine all that stuff and, you know, some of the other issues, you know, Jimmy, maybe they want to pay Jimmy completely, but those are the two main ones I would say as the reasons to not bring Jimmy back. All right. Well, you, you get, let's say you get the job, you get the Sixers job, uh, yeah. and, like a, a shocking turn of events. Uh, the all- I don't want it. How much are you paying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the author of taking to the top, they say, Oh yeah, well, you know what you, what, what, you know, you know how we <laughs> Now it's your chance, pal. So they hire you as GM. What what moves can the Sixers make at this point to to kind of get this thing back on track, or are there any moves they can make at this point to get this thing? So there are moves. You have to, they have to figure out the Horford thing. You probably have to trade him. The problem is how much do you attach? Like nobody's going to want that contract, um, especially in this market, the post-COVID market, where you know teams are a little more strapped for cash. Owners probably don't want to go to luxury tax, things like that. Um, you got to be very targeted now with your fits, right? You need shooters. You need guys, guards who can dribble who can dribble, drive, and shoot, you know, uh, it sounds simple, but those are harder to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you have to be very targeted in your guys. You got to find your guys in the market, you know, oh, this team might not want, you know, he's a seventh man, but he would be a perfect fit for us. They might undervalue him. Let's see if we can get him for a, I don't know, a Zaire Smith, whatever, make up or a second round pick or whoever it'd be. Um, you have to be very targeted. Obviously hiring a head coach is important. That's going to be a big difference. Um, the interesting conversation to me is the Simmons and Bead thing. I'm, I wouldn't make a trade now, but I do wonder if at some point the conversation with the two of them was always, do you think, should you trade one because they can't fit, right? That's always the question. To me, it's going to start shifting soon is forget that is we're so stuck here. Do we have any other ways out of this than trading one of them and seeing what we can get for them? Like it's a separate mm-hmm. conversation, right? Like do, should we be making a switch? Um, and that, in that being the case, yeah, I'll be curious to see what they do. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's a great quote. There's a documentary on the band The Eagles, which I'm not a fan of the okay. band, but the documentary is really good. And at one point, Joe Walsh says a great quote that really I feel like ties into to this in your book. He says, as you live your life, it appears to be anarchy and chaos and random events, non-related <laughs> events, smashing into each other and causing this situation. And it's overwhelming. And later, when you look back at it, it looks like a finely crafted novel. I feel like- <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Kind of is the process. And when I started, you know, reading excerpts from your book and started listening to you on some other podcasts, it's like, okay, 
we've kind of reached the end of this thing and now we can look back on it and see just how crazy what we just yes. lived through was because we were living through the process, right? Reef, like as six or six. It wasn't, yeah, yeah, it was, like, oh, yeah. Okay. It was just every day. It was normal. Yeah. yeah, right, right. This this craziness was just, was the, the anarchy and chaos of, you know, the burner account and Markel Fultz yeah. history, you know, injury, like, that was normal to us. And it's like, now we look back and I think with your book, it, it's a great, it's a great uh, example. Norland's Noel. Remember that just popped mm-hmm. in my head. <laughs> right. like looking back at this whole thing that just happened and now it all, you were able to, you're able to tie all the pieces in together into this thing. It's like, oh yeah, that thing just happened. Like when you're researching this, are you ever like, wow, holy shit, this burned. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's too much. I'll be like, it's too much. I can't. I call it shenanigans, right? There's so many shenanigans. That was the phrase I would use, like, in my writing. It just is too much, like, too much nonsense. Um, <laughs> it's funny, or not funny sometimes, but it's uh, it's a lot. And yeah, for 100%, it's a lot. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, like, has any, I mean, like, uh, yeah. Are there any sports teams that are as in, like, like, it is to me the most interesting story of the past seven years, right? Like it hasn't ended in a title or anything. Like, are there any, I was going to say in terms of takeaway success stories, I mean, I guess like, you don't want to say golden state warriors and some of that stuff. Um, the Knicks might rival them for nonsense, but the Sixers do it bigger and better than everyone else. And just, <laughs> the stakes are so high. The expectations are so high and they do take another level in the weirdness. Maybe that's a better word. The weirdness, right? There's like typical sports scandals, coach isn't good. X happens that, you know, forgetting how to shoot, burner gate, things like that. Like these are next level. You, you don't see these ever, like anywhere, right? Right, yeah. and they all happen any, in place. Any plans to do a uh, book on your beloved Knicks? <laughs> then I keep saying I need them to like, you know, if you think like, uh, not to be like narratively, you need like, you know, an arc, right? There's no arc right now for them. There's no, uh, it's, right. just, it's just this. There's no, there's no upside. I need like a something. And we'll say. Right, right. It's like Titan. It's like writing Titanic 2. It's like the ship's already right. at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah. I, right. I need something going up, you know, the, the, the happy moment that people want. Then I can, then I can jump in there. All right, Yaron Weitzman, the author of Tanking to the Top. want to thank you so much for coming on with us today. We hope to have the book uh, in the store uh, before too long. In the meantime, you can pick up a copy of it on Amazon. Uh, Yaron, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. See ya.